take your Bibles and open up to James chapter 1. We had a we have a, we had an intro class this morning for people who are kind of new with the church, and it was awesome to hear those uh, kiddos in their equipping class quoting scripture that they had memorized, walking through. Right now, they're learning a scripture from every book of the Bible, starting Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I think she said they were in First Samuel maybe today. Just uh, warmed my heart to see those kids learning. Um, what did David say? How does a young man keep his heart pure or way pure? By hiding the word in our hearts. When you became a Christian, for those of you in here who are Christians, a dramatic change took place in your life. If you are in Christ today, You live every moment of your life in an intimate friendship with God. Every moment of your life in an intimate friendship with God, with his favor upon you. And what this should do in our life is it should create in us a confident joy. Your life and mine should be marked by this. We wake up every day to this new day with friendship with the maker of the universe the one who opened his mouth and out came literally everything. And not that we would just know him, but that we have been adopted into his family. We, we, are, the, uh, we, we, we are the highest part, he says in scripture, uh, of, his, of his inheritance, that he longed for us to be a part of his family and to place his favor upon us. And because we know that, and we should know that, and we should function like that, and we should wake up every moment Every morning, just knowing that his favor is on us and we have friendship with God. Can you imagine what that's like? That should produce in us confident joy. We should be, what Paul says in Romans, always rejoicing or rejoicing in all circumstances. Paul would later say that we are sorrowful but always rejoicing. Peter would say that we have joy inexpressible and full of glory. James would say that we should have joy even when we face trials of many kinds. And we spoke at length about this last week. Remind you quickly, James opens his letter to the scattered Christians who will see trial and difficulty far greater than you or I could ever imagine. With their allegiance to Christ, they were forced out of their homes. Because of their allegiance to Christ, most of them often were killed. They were forced to learn. Many starved to death. They literally had nothing. They were forced into caves and into hiding. And in the midst of that, with the Roman oppression, with everything against them, with their own family members, often denying them, James has the boldness to write to that group of people that is suffering to such extent, and he said, hey, consider it joy when you face trials of many kind. James' message does not change, it is be joyful. But it hurts, James. He knows He gives us a few things that we have to do, things that we have to know, things that we have to possess, things that we have to cling on to 
so that we can have this kind of joy. And last week we talked about three of those things, that we should think of this trial as joy because of what it's producing. Again, joy is not a giddy bliss, but it's a settled confidence. It's not you squinting your eyes and just hoping, just telling you that it's easy. My wife is cold-natured. She's the one that you see in here wearing a snow jacket in the middle of July sometimes. As a matter of fact, if you're new here, there are pockets of here that are like a polar uh, vortex. It's the wind. So if you're in one of those, feel free to move around. Um, but what she'll do in the wintertime, she's already naturally cold. In the wintertime, she'll get in bed in the evening, put her cold feet on me, and she will say in her mind, I'm hot, I'm hot, I'm hot, I'm hot, I'm hot, trying to mentally like get to this place where she feels warm. But that's not what, that's not, that's not what I'm asking you to do. That's not what James is asking us to do. When things hurt, we're not squinting our eyes saying it feels good, it feels good, it feels good, because it does not feel good. We're to think of it as joy, settled confidence, because of what it's producing in us. We are to endure it to the end, to keep on enduring. If you give up before it's over, you waste the trial. You prolong the development of the person that God is trying to develop. And you aren't ready for the next trial. God knows what's coming next, and he's committed to preparing you to face it. You understand this, right? You, <clears throat> you work to prepare your kids for what's next. When your kid's about to start kindergarten, you got to get that potty training down. Because them kindergarten teachers, they, they're not taking your kids to the bathroom, right? And so that's, that was our objective. We got to get you. We're preparing our kids for what's next. And this is what our good Heavenly Father does for us. He prepares us. We don't know what's coming. We don't know what's around the bend. We don't know what difficulty might arise. We don't know what blessing or victories ahead of us. We know none of that. But to prepare us for that, our God is so good and so loving that he says, I'm going to walk you through and prepare you now for what's next. Isn't that what happened to King David? King David was anointed king. Remember the whole thing with, uh, with Goliath? You remember? There he is talking to Saul. And Saul says, David, how do you know that you can go and defeat? You're this little, you're this little kid. How can you go and defeat this giant of a man that none of the armies of Israel can face? And you remember what, you know what David said? Well, you know, back when I was, attending, when I was tending the sheep, there, there came a there came a bear and God equipped me to defeat that bear and then there came a lion and I defeated that lion so if God was with me through the bear and through the lion certainly he'll be with me through the giant does that make sense you see how God prepared David how God is trying to prepare you through this trial and this is why you can't give up you've got to keep on enduring please don't give up just around the corner dawn is coming right the sun is rising keep on enduring and then the third thing that he told us in the first few verses of the book of James is that we should ask for wisdom. From the time you begin walking through the, tri through the trial to the time where you look back and see what God's doing, if you can see what God was doing, you need wisdom to trust God through the difficulty in the space between. The space between is the scary part. It's the part where we have to use faith because we can't see what's next. Faith is having the confidence to trust God when we can't tell what he's up to and when we don't understand, wisdom is knowing how to apply God's word into that specific circumstance. But that's not the end of the tools that we need to carry with us in this life as we walk through difficulty. No, we'll talk about it. James talks about it at least four more times in his little book of just a few chapters. Let's look at verse 12 through 18 today. 
in the book of James. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Verse 12. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot, tempt with, cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when, when sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death or destruction. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and perfect gift, gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Now concerning trials. All of us are going to walk through the wilderness at some point. No amount of money or faith or favor or talent or genius or community is going to keep you out of the wilderness. Now, certainly some of those things can help. But pain and suffering does not discriminate. All of us will walk through the wilderness at some point. And James, from his heart, a pastor's heart, knows he cannot prevent the storms of life. He cannot prevent the wilderness of them walking through it. The things are going to come against his flock. But he can prepare them to walk through them with joy. He can't prevent, but he can prepare. James is giving us a list, again, of all the things that we've got to have to come through this season with victory. And ultimately, church, let me remind you, trial leads to triumph. Let's be honest. When crisis comes, you will trust some type of Savior. You will throw your weight onto some type of Savior. For some of you, it's your own intellect. Maybe it's your grit. Some of you, it's your vast community of people who owe you favors, maybe it's a big savings account that you have, and those might work for a little while and in some seasons of difficulty, but certainly not for all. James tells us, he gives us this list of things that we just have to do, that we just can't do without when we walk through trials. But this passage, 12 through 18, has a little different viewpoint. In these few verses, the focus is not necessarily on what we must do as we walk through trials, but James shifts his focus And he's trying to draw our focus to who God is. And I don't want us to miss this because this is so big. Who God is. If you remember that God loves you. Loves you perfectly more than anyone else on this earth. As a matter of fact, he loves you to an extent that you could never even understand. And if you believe that he loves you perfectly and that he knows more than anyone that you've ever met, he's all-knowing. As a matter of fact, That God knows every possible thing there is to know. Every possible outcome of every possible decision of all six billion people that are living on the earth now and the billions that have lived before. He doesn't forget a prayer that you've prayed. He doesn't ignore a tear that you've cried. God knows everything and God loves you perfectly. He knows your thoughts before you think them, Scripture tells us. He knows even the motives of your heart behind those thoughts. Scripture tells us that he knows the number of hairs on your head. We don't even know how many. I mean, could you even guess how many hairs are on your head? What is there, you know, there's different amounts in this room, right? Does it start thinning? A um, hundred, a thousand, ten thousand? I have no idea. God knows exactly how much. 
And knowing all of that about you, that you're loved perfectly, that he knows everything, loves you without conditions. I love the Jesus Storbuck Bible, the definition of God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. We talk about that all the time in my family because I know my kids are going to walk through difficulty. And they're going to be tempted when they walk through difficulty to give up. And they're going to be tempted when walking through difficulty to say that God must not be present. And they're going to be tempted when walking through difficulty to throw in the towel. And I hope this phrase of God's love would ring over their heart again and again. That God's love is never stopping and never giving up. Unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. Now this is important, friends. Because to the level that you know your God is the level that you will trust him when crisis comes. To the degree that you know your God is to the, the, the degree that you will trust him when crisis comes. We're going to do things a little different in this passage. Typically we'll take the passage and we will um, walk through it expositionally. And then I'll give you a few points of application at the end. But we're going to kind of blend those two. We'll see who God is and what he says and what our response is uh, kind of intermixed here. The first promise that God gives us here, the first thing that we learn about God is that God keeps his promises. I think I put on the slide, keep your eyes up because God keeps his promises. That's what it says in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. You might underline that, that God has promised and God keeps his promises. We can remain steadfast under trial because God made a promise. And God always keeps his promises. He always has and always will. And what exactly was that promise? That at the end of our trial or our life of trials, we would receive the crown of life. The promise here is that God blesses the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial. Steadfast, endures it to the end. So similar to James chapter 5 and verse 11. You might write that down the margin of your Bible. Speaking of suffering, this is what he says in chapter 5 verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Again, blessed those who remain steadfast. The illustration given us of that of Job. That God had a purpose in Job's suffering. And some of it Job figured out and some of it Job didn't figure out. And we don't know exactly what it is. But at the end of all things, Job trusted in God. Or God put Job really back in his place. You think your suffering's tough. You should go read the book of Job. The word blessing is sometimes hard to, hard to uh, define. It's kind of ambiguous, especially when it's in the wisdom literature. But not here. James is typical. He comes right out and says exactly what he's thinking. Blessed is the man who endures or perseveres or remains steadfast under trial. <clears throat> what is this blessing? It's the crown of life that he will receive. Paul says it in Romans 8 this way in verse 18, Romans 8, 18. For I consider, <clears throat> excuse me, that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Sufferings of this present time, not even worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed, to this crown of life that is spoken of 
union, perfect union with Jesus someday. There was two words for crown used in the Greek language. There was one that spoke of a royal crown. You would think of it that uh, something that a king or a queen might wear with the gold and the rubies. That's not what's used here. This is not a royal crown. This is a victor's crown. Think of an Olympian in the early Olympic Games who would win, who would be victorious, and they would put not a crown of gold and rubies, but typically a laurel wreath woven and placed on the head of the victorious one. The point is, James says, when we endure to the end, we will receive a victor's crown, the crown of life, or another way of saying it, the crown that is life. The blessing here is this. The man who endures the trial has the settled confidence that he can do it. This is ongoing hope. This song we just sang, Peter would say, this is what living hope looks like. Have you ever been in a place where you didn't know if you could do it anymore? Sure, we all have. You may have even uttered uttered those words, maybe even this week. I just can't do it anymore. I'm overwhelmed. The trial is too hard. The season is too dark. It's too dry. The wilderness is too barren. Remember, we defined joy in verse 2 as this settled confidence. So James is saying, blessed is the man who doesn't give up in the midst of trial because he has a settled confidence that God is in control and he trusts God. Second part of 12, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is a conditional phrase. The idea of once he has stood the test, or maybe your translation says, once he has been approved... It's speaking of heaven or when we stand before the Father at the end of our days. And that might provoke another question in your mind. Is he saying that heaven is only for those who endure trials? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Heaven is only reserved for those who endure trials. The ultimate blessing in life, eternal life with Jesus, is reserved for those who endure trials. So heaven is reserved for those who endure the trials of life. So does that mean that if I'm a very determined person and all the self-discipline I can muster, that I endure the trial in front of me, then I get to go to heaven? And the answer is absolutely not. No one will get to heaven unless they endure trials, but no one will get to heaven as a result of enduring those trials. Am I making any sense? Look at the verse again. It says, we receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. The promise, heaven is prepared for those in God's family, those who love him. It has been promised to those who love him. Well then, can be a little confusing. Which is it? Is heaven for those who endure trials or for those who are in the family of God holding on to the promise of God? Eternal life can't be based on our works and based on the promise. So then which is it? Let me make it very clear, church. We are going to heaven based upon the promise of God. Based upon our faith in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, and his future return. We're going to heaven based on the promise of God. Don't miss that. But here's what God does. God knows that at times I'm going to question whether I'm really in the family or not. 
that there's going to be some darkness and, and there's going to be some doubt. And my flesh is so weak that at times I wonder if any of this is even true anymore. So what God does, he places the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ in us. This is so beautiful. I want you to get this. So when the time comes that I get down and I begin to doubt and when I think I can't press on and I got to wave the white flag of surrender, something supernatural happens. God allows me to accomplish something or walk through something that I could have never accomplished on my own. God sets a standard so high that no one can reach, that we have to endure every trial. And then God gives us the Holy Spirit, and he empowers us to walk through those trials. Isn't God good, what he does? So when my flesh is weak and I'm doubting whether I'm saved, along comes the trials of life, which God empowers me to endure with joy, and I'm assured all over again, I could have never done that without God in my life, but only God working through me. And it confirms in my heart that I'm a child of God, and that he's with me, and that he can be trusted, and that his promise is greater than any of my feelings. Does that make sense? That's why we have to keep our eyes up, focused on the promise. I love Psalms 121. If you know me very well, this is, this is the only encouragement I have for you. Look to the hills. Psalms 121, I love how David says this. I, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. <clears throat> the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. He brings comfort. The sun shall not strike you by the day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all of evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And on and on it goes. So church, keep your eyes up. Focused on the promises of God. Sometimes we don't see what he's doing. But never doubt that he is with us. He has promised. He's never promised a, comfort, a life of comfort and ease. He never promised that we would be victorious in everything that we put our hands to. No, you know what he promised? That he would never leave us nor forsake us. And that he's coming again. Those are his promises to us. So when you walk through the wilderness, even though you can't see him, you have no idea what's going on, and we can trust him. Keep your eyes up. God keeps his promises. This might be a little cheesy, but my next point, pastors can be a little cheesy, right? My next point is to keep your chin up because God gives good gifts. The phrase, keep your chin up, I'm sure you've heard it, is an idiom that serves as an encouragement not to give up or to give in despite hard circumstances. I don't know if it's used anymore. I know my dad used to tell it to me and grandpa used to say it to me, son, keep your chin up. Let's look at verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted that I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Have you ever noticed when life is hard? When you're physically tired, you're emotionally exhausted, you're spiritually worn out, that you, you tend to make the worst decisions? No one drowns their feelings with kale and quinoa. Am I right? 
No one has a hard day or gets fussed at by the boss or experiences relational problems or a bad call from the doctor and the first thing they want to do is inhale carrots and hummus. No, give me, give me the party-sized bag of Cheetos and the, and the Dublin Dr. Pepper, right? Give me, the, give me the whole gallon of ice cream. I'm going to drown my feelings, right, in, in, in bad decisions at this moment. Give me Netflix binging and corn dogs from the fair. Wouldn't that be awesome? Verse 13 shifts from trials generically to temptation specifically. And here's the point he's making and why these two are together. Every trial can be a temptation for us to lose faith in God. Every trial is a temptation for us to lose faith in God. Well, I prayed and God didn't answer. So he must not be here. Why well, I asked him that he would save this person and, and he didn't do what I had asked. And, and so maybe, maybe he just doesn't hear. Maybe he's, not, maybe he's not around. Maybe he's asleep at the wheel. Maybe he's not hearing me. Every trial is a temptation for us to lose faith in God. So difficult family situation. We're hurt and we're tempted not to forgive them. And instead we want to despise them and grow bitter. We're difficult financial situation and the temptation is to cut corners and to quit tithing or quit being generous or envying those who are succeeding or we're in a difficult health situation that we can't control and we're tempted to let frustration lead to being angry at God for allowing this thing to come into my own life so these are similar words in the context but also very different and to help us Think rightly about God to be a good theologian. James says, listen, here, just, just remember this from the, from the start. God cannot be tempted by evil, and God will never tempt anyone. God is not this sadistic puppet master in the sky just trying to entice us so that we might fail at something. Well, if God doesn't tempt me, then what is the cause of sin in my life? Oh, well, James, he covers it in verse 14 uses these fishing terms. Look at what he says here in verse 14. Let no one say when he's tempted that I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person <clears throat> is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. It's the picture of the lure in the water. Anyone who's ever gone fishing understands this the fisherman throws the fish throws the lure in the water and the fish underwater looks at it it appears to be food and then when he's, when the lure is taken it takes the fish away to a place that he never intended or never expected it's what sin does in our life when we take hold of it we're promised comfort and pleasure and yet it takes us to a place Although it might be pleasurable in a moment, the consequences are deadly. So we take part of the sin, and before we know it, not only did it bring the satisfaction we anticipated, but just the opposite, it begins to bring destruction. So the answer for us, church, in the midst of our trials is not to give into temptation, and look where it says that this temptation comes from. It doesn't come from God, and it doesn't necessarily even come from Satan and his 
demons, although certainly they're at work enticing us. You know where the sin normally comes from? It comes from us. Look again in verse 14. When each person is tempted, he is lured and enticed by what? By his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, give birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. We begin to excuse our sin. What James says is even if there was no lure in front of us, we would cast the lure in so that we would be tempted to sin and we would give in to that temptation. James is saying, hey, don't take the bait. Don't fall into temptation even when things are difficult. Now, a quick word of caution. Be careful that your heart cries do not suddenly turn into agreements with despair from the enemy. When things are hard, do not let Father, I feel abandoned, turn into the agreement, I am abandoned. It is such a relief to admit the anguish, but such a danger, right, to proclaim truth over this feeling. Emotions are real and they matter, but emotions, this is what John Eldridge says, emotions are real and they matter, but emotions are not a safe harbor for the soul. Our enemy is always there in times of distress, trying to get us to agree with his lies. You are forsaken. God is asleep. God doesn't care. You're not in his family. I love this. The child who cries out in the dark feels very differently when mom comes and switches on the lights. What felt so real and inevitable vanishes. Let us be careful that we don't embrace the pain in such a way that we forbid God for coming to turn the light on and drawing near. Hey, keep your chin up, church. God brings good gifts to his kids. He's not angry with you. He loves you. If the cross doesn't remind you of anything, it should remind you of his love. That he would bankrupt heaven itself, sending his only son to pave a way for your salvation. In the darkest of your nights, you ever notice that difficulty is hardest at night? And I'm laying in bed and my heart is going crazy and my anxiousness and the enemy is whispering lies to me. I have to hold on to the cross. You can ask, ask sometimes I verbalize it. I just says, Jesus, I know you love me because of the cross. I'm not acting like you ignore the pain. Look at Psalms 42. I love again how the psalmist is so real with his thoughts. He says, a little animated here, but certainly real. If you've read through some of the, some of the life of David, you know it's, it's pretty crazy. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? You've been in that place? Or just, you just feel like you just can't cry anymore? I'm so numb I don't even want to eat. And the tears are, are saying to him, of course, this. They're saying to me, where is your God? Where is your God? In verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival 
Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And this is him, I love this. This is David agreeing with God against his feelings right now. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. We're seeing the psalmist wrestle with this very thing in the midst of darkness when temptation is just right next to us and we're tempted to give in and throw in the towel and think the wrong things about God, this is what the psalmist does. He remembers being in the presence of God, leading the throng of people with shouts of praise. You remember those moments where you felt closest to him, where where he was just right with you? My neighbor thinks... Neighbors think I'm crazy. I get on the lawnmower sometimes, and man, I'll have the worship in. I'll have both hands up in the air. My grass looks terrible. You know, my mower's going all over. You ever get to that place where your heart is just, I mean, you're just right there with them. I mean, the next step would be heaven, just being there. David said, I remember that. I remember, I remember those, that moment, glad shouts and songs of praise. And he directs his soul. We put our hope in God. Look at verse 16, James. Keep your chin up. God gives good gifts to his kids. Don't be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You might underline that if you do that in your Bible. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Think about all the things that you enjoy most in life. The perfect cup of coffee. The perfect cup of coffee. The aroma of great food. Fajitas. The ability to laugh and love, hearing your kids laugh. The smell of cut grass, seasons changing, all the things that when you walk through them, you're like, man, that's incredible. Every one of those things is a gift from God. And he's given them to all humanity as common grace. Notice it says every good thing. Nothing you do in and of yourself is good. Unless God's involved, nothing good can come to you or from you. We like to brag about ourselves and the things that we've accomplished and our self-discipline and our sharp mind, but without God, we would have none of that, right? So church, keep your chin up because God gives good gifts. And here's the last point. Keep your, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up, God is working for your good. Look in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Look how good God created us, but he knew we would be unable to respond to him because of the sin that was in our life. And so he, in essence, recreated us so that we could respond to him. And look at what we responded to specifically, the truth of God or the word of truth. 
So the cause of my salvation is God, but the means of my salvation is the good news of Jesus. It's the gospel. That's why we preach that the gospel is involved in every aspect of our life. Paul uses the term word of truth and gospel synonymously through his letters. Do you get this? God willed you into existence, but because you couldn't respond to him because of your sin, he created a way for you to return to him through faith in Jesus Christ and his death and burial and resurrection and coming return. But it didn't stop there. Not just he made a way, now he has to get you to put your faith into that way. So what did he do? He sent someone to you. Maybe it was a godly grandmother or mom and dad. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher or a youth worker or neighbor or a person on the ball team. He sent someone to you to bring that good news to you. So that your heart would be enlightened and you would turn from darkness and toward the light. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 1.21. I don't think I have this up here. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God sent you a preacher, not a pastor on a stage. No, he sent you someone else that would vocalize the good news of Jesus to you. Think about that. How incredible and supernatural that is. That just at the right time, the words of truth would be implanted in a heart that is desperate for it. And God would move in such a way that you would turn from your sin and turn and put your faith in Jesus. Look at the second part of verse 18. It says that God did all of this so that we would be first fruits among his creation. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God did all of this so that our lives would be a display of grace to the watching world. Remember, he uses a term here the Jews would have been very familiar with, this idea of first fruits. We don't use it that often anymore, maybe. In the Old Testament, the Jews were required to take the best of their crop and livestock and money and give it back to God. The best of their harvest, the best of their sheep, the best of uh, their herbs and spices, the best of what they had, they were to take that and dedicate it unto God. So James wraps up this thought on suffering and this one chapter again. He's going to continue in the in subsequent weeks. We'll look at them by reminding us that God is at work in your life so that we could be part of his family and we could share the word of truth with those who aren't yet in the family. By the way that we respond in trial and difficulty communicates to the watching world that the good news is really good news. The first fruits. When we were in Dallas, one of Ashley's very best friends, Sarah, was pregnant with her second child. She was a neighbor and a good friend. One of the first people we really did, uh, we had our first missional community with so many years ago. I remember the call, she came over, said, hey, I need to come share some news with you. She came in and she said, you know what, I'm pregnant. I don't remember how long she was, four or five months. She said, but the, you know, the, they've looked inside and it's just the baby's not going to have life. Doctors say maybe a day, maybe a minute, maybe a second, may, may nothing. Ashley and I just in tears in our little living room and we're praying for Sarah. 
she's, she's crying, her husband Brandon's crying. And so we began to pray. I mean, not just Southern Baptist kind of pray. We began to, you know, Pentecostal kind of pray. You know what I'm talking about? You don't have any Pentecostals in your life, you need to get some. Because when you need prayer, don't call the Southern Baptist. You call somebody who knows how to reach into heaven and claim God's promises. We began to pray and fast and pray that God would heal this little baby. He's, he made the baby. He can, can remake them in the womb. I don't think it had lungs. The lungs never, God, you can create lungs, the little bitty lungs. Just create lungs in there. Sarah was one of our youth workers and I told her, you know what, during this next few months, if you need to just, you know, kind of take some time off. She's like, oh, no, I'm good. She was there. Baby was born. Elliot was his name. He lived just a few minutes. And we went to the funeral. A lot of people, incredible time of worship. I'll never forget this. In the front row, Brandon and Sarah, with both hands in the air, praising God for what he's done. How can you do that in a time of trial? Dark, how, how can you do that? Only through the good news of Jesus is your living hope. They'll see him again one day. I believe with all my heart. I learned something about suffering with joy in that moment from watching these two. How do we respond but with surrender and praise? When I see someone's hands up in the air, that's what speaks to me, surrender and praise, even in the midst of suffering. Peter would tell it to us this way in chapter 4. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, there's that word again, inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Church, I don't know what wilderness you're walking through, but I encourage you to look for the opportunity and what Adversity you're facing. We can't have discipleship without suffering. It's chains that fortify. It's circumstances that strengthen. It's adversity that becomes opportunity. When our life becomes a picture of the way of the cross. This invitational way of living allows others to see the real you in real time struggle with real issues and real pain. This is where your life and your struggles are gonna provide a stage. Your pain provides a platform. Your mess provides a message. Your misery becomes a microphone. Why? To point people to God. That's why we're here. They pray for us. Before I pray, every head bowed, I just want you to talk to God. Maybe temptation has come and presented itself and you're in this downward cycle of temptation, this downward spiral of darkness. You're just giving into it again and again. The pain was real. You took the quickest off-ramp to ease the pain and now you're in a place you never expected to be. 
I would invite you to repent of that today. God and his goodness will cover up any bad decision that you've ever made. Some of you are just walking through one of the hardest times in your life. Others of you are just walking through difficulty, and I just want to pray for you. I'm going to ask the prayer team to go to the back, and they'll be available to pray with you here in just a moment. But no one looking around. If you just raise your hand just so I could see it and say, Luke, I'm walking through just one of the most difficult trials of my life. I just want to pray for you. I'm not going to call you out. It's fine. I see hands. Dozens of them. Church, would you join me in just praying? God, we need hope. Our heart wants to rest in everything but you sometimes. And when things get difficult, we, we run to things that seem comfortable and not to you. So God, my prayer today is that you would bring peace and joy in the lives of these that just acknowledge they're walking through one of the most difficult times of their life. They're like David where the, their food has been their tears day and night. And Lord, they have every reason to give up except before the foundation of the world you set a plan in place that they could be forgiven of their sin and they could walk through the darkest night that would come their way because of their hope in you. I pray that they would hold on to that hope. Lord, that you would bring real peace. I mean, almost visible peace. Lord, even at this moment, as we pray as a church, would you wrap your arms of grace around them in such a way that there is not a shadow of a doubt that you are with them in the midst of this difficulty. Father, as we prepare our hearts for communion, a reminder, a visible reminder of an invisible truth that you loved us so much you sent your son Jesus for us. And when we take this meal week after week, we're reminded of your body broken, of your bloodshed, of the family that we have around us, of the Holy Spirit within us, and of your coming return. Lord, we long for the day when you heal the broken, when you fix the shattered, where there'll be no disease, no anxiety, no darkness. But until that day comes, Lord, may your church put our hope and faith and trust in you with our eyes up and chin up, hands up. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.